Okay, tonight we have How We Get in a Mess or Dependent Origination to Return of Part 2. <laughs> That's the title. <laughs> okay, well, we started to examine dependent origination and its role. What I want to do is just very briefly recap um, because this stuff is a bit like, I don't know, it just passes through mostly. <laughs> It would have a label on it, say, just passing through. Because it's so easy not to pick up on this unless you dwell with this a number of times. And I really, really do mean it, hearing it lots and lots and lots of times before it really starts to sink in. So we're giving a psychological profile of how we get in the state we're in, how we get into this state called sangsara, which is a way of being, remember, um, claiming that it's not a place, um, sangsara is a way of being in this world which is basically toned in a certain way and that tone is dukkha that tone is unpleasantness and suffering and misery and so on and so forth I'm not going to go into the great litany yet again so that's, uh, that's what we're dealing with the kind of situation that we find ourselves in now lest this all seem negative and I really really want to go at great pains to, to uh, lay any fears that this is very negative. It's not. This is diagnostic, and I really want to keep emphasizing that. Um, basically, what we've got is a diagnosis, and four ennobling truths are a diagnosis and a cure, basically. What we have is the diagnosis of the problem, um, which I've talked about in quite a bit of depth so far, and we're still, in a sense, looking at it at the moment. Uh, and those are the first two of the ennobling truths which is actually the truth of dukkha, the truth of this unsatisfactoriness and everything that's included under that unsatisfactoriness. And then, of course, uh, the truth of the cause of dukkha. Now, everything changes once you understand that. So it's not just dwelling on dukkha, it's understanding that there's a causal mechanism behind it. And that is what we're engaged in examining at the moment in terms of situational patterning, as I call it, the way that we pattern every situation that we find ourselves in psychologically, um, or dependent origination if you want to hear it in its more traditional translation. Then, of course, the third of the ennobling truths is the truth of cessation, um, the truth of stopping leaking, as I was putting it last night. You know, stop leaking this stuff onto the world, all this unpleasantness, onto the world, which is toxic, basically, um, which we are rather incontinent with. That's one of the claims I was making last night, uh, that we continue to leak. So the whole point about it is ceasing that leaking that's going on. Now, we tend to forget that. There's a lot of talk I hear in Buddhist circles where everything circles around the problem, uh, but nobody actually says it can stop. <laughs> and that is actually the third of the ennobling truths. That is actually the hope, if you want to put it in that term, that is held out to you, that this can stop. This is not just a kind of intellectual examination of a problem and kind of ferreting around in the problem. This is all to get to that third of the ennobling truths, that if you understand that there is a problem and a cause, and you really understand that cause, then it can cease. There's one particular image that's often used for this cessation, which is the image of a candle. And this is usually equated with nibbana. This word nibbana or nirvana 
um, actually in the original language is what's called an intransitive verb in uh, Pali and Sanskrit. Um, basically, it means gone out. That's all it means. Um, early translators took this as being, again, another emphasis of the negativity of, of Buddhist thinking, and it isn't. The image is used as of a candle um, with a flame. Now, as the candle burns down, obviously through the wick and through the wax, it will go out. In other words, when all of the sustaining forces, all the causes and conditions which sustain that flame have been used up, then the flame goes out. And in a sense, that is the image that's being used in Buddhism for nirvana or nibbana. Because it's the image of the sustaining causes for samsara, in some senses, being used up or ceased or blown out, actually, is another way you can translate this. But it actually means gone out. Then, of course, we get to the final bit, which we'll start with perhaps tonight, perhaps tomorrow night. Let's see where we get. Which is the notion that there is a path, there is a regimen to health. There's a sickness, a cause for that sickness, uh, the good news that you can overcome it, and finally, here's a regimen to put you back onto health, back into health again. Uh, and that is the Noble Eightfold Path, um, with all of its elements, which are usually divided into three elements, which is moral ethical behavior, um, basically wisdom or understanding or insight, which is something that's included in the title for this week. And then, of course, samadhi, which is actually dealing with the meditative practices itself. So there's three dimensions to that path. It's a tripartite path. It's not singular, and it's all interrelated. The whole path. I would describe it as a bit like a blancmange. You poke it in one bit, and it wobbles all over. Because <laughs> every bit affects every other bit within it. So you can't take any dimension out singly and just develop that at the expense of the others. So that is the path that we're dealing with. We're still in the cause, though. We're still looking at dependent origination here. And we started off by looking at, uh, in some senses, something that comes right into this moment, which is delusion or ignorance. Comes right into this moment. Simply not knowing. It's not simply not knowing, it's not wanting to know. Remember I was saying last night? It's simply overlooking continuously. Really, really not knowing. It's like the person who's been told they've got a really, really bad habit knows that like smoking or something like that, knows all the knows all the literature, knows it inside out, but still in a sense doesn't give up because they don't want to know in many ways. There's something not going on there, which is not connecting, which enables them to actually cease doing what they're doing, despite having all the information at our fingers. As I joked about it last night, we could have all the information of Buddhism at our fingertips, and yet still That ignorance is composed of elements which we call asavas. Those asavas are the deepest seated, most difficult areas of our psyche in some ways, some ways from a Buddhist perspective to eliminate or eradicate. They are the ignorance itself, of course, which is known as uh, vijasava. Then we have, of course, the uh, sensual desire as part of that element too. Um, you know, Kamasava. Then we have the desire for some kind of continued existence, 
which is also part of that. And then finally we have, which is usually added on actually, uh, which is all of these opinions that we hold, which are actually wrong views about the world that we hold on to, such as the ones I mentioned last night, like the misperceptions, such as perceiving that which is actually dukkha to be happiness, to perceive that which is actually impermanent to be permanent, and so on and so forth. Because of the presence of those we have over the past, and this is just, we don't even have to talk about past lives. We just talk about this life with this history. We don't need to go into past lives, uh, as it does in the um, traditions. We can talk about this life with its history. Out of that kind of ignorance and delusion, what we do is we create habitual ways of dealing with the world. Remember I was saying about this last night, habitual ways of thought, word, and deed, of dealing with the world. Obviously, the predominant element, of course, is the mind here. I gave you a quote, mind is the forerunner of all things. So dependent on how that mind is, and really this is the essence of Buddhism, is that mind transformation, and this is exactly what you're engaged in over this retreat, which is the transformation of mind from, if you like, ill will, into something which we would call kindness or love towards others. Um, As you can see from those who are engaging in the retreat, this is a difficult task. It's no easy task whatsoever. (laughs) It's very, very hard work. Um, Often I think people are gulled into a sense of false security when they hear loving kindness. It's going to be really easy, isn't it? No. (laughs) Because you're fighting against all of your natural tendencies. (laughs) So it's not such an easy task whatsoever. But it is this mind transformation. And so the mind transformation, in some senses, is working directly on, to use the technical word for it, which is called sankharas, which is the habitual formations or the karmic formations Remember I gave you the image of a potter forming. That's the way we form our lives. We mould our lives in particular ways. Um, And at a certain point, it gets stuck. Um, It doesn't mean it's continuing. It doesn't mean it doesn't continue to change, but the moulding gets less as we get older. Um, We have less chance to mould it. Um, I'm very fond of this quote because I think it's so true a lot of the time. And I've said it so many times in this room. Um, but it's a quote by Benjamin Franklin, which says, most people, are dead by, most people are dead by the age of 25. They're just not buried till 70. <laughs> which I think is a great quote, because it actually shows us how, in fact, you know, this molding process stops at a certain period and becomes fixed and almost rigidified. Um, at a certain stage. Now, I think it's probably a bit of an over-exaggeration to put it at quite such a young age, but I know what he means, or I get a sense of what he means there. So we have these formations, and out of those formations, in a sense, we have consciousness arising, because consciousness and the formations are what we are immediately aware of in any moment. So as we are sitting here in this moment, we're often conscious of our dispositions. For example, our viewpoints our views are there, even in the way even you perhaps hear this material um, as you're digesting it, taking it in. 
it's filtered through, obviously, all of your history to a certain degree and all of your you know, predilections about what you want to hear and what you don't want to hear uh, in these terms. So it's a filter mechanism. So consciousness is that which is immediately in engagement with these formations. Then I said, because of this consciousness and formations interchange, in a sense, operative on each other, and I didn't go into the details of the mechanism because we don't really have time here, um, that we then pattern mind and body. We pattern it in the moment, and of course the way that we pattern our minds and bodies now is going to have a future effect. So if I have, say, particular, let's take a very simple example, if I have to have particular bad habits now, bodily habits, where I'm, wherein I eat things which are not good for me, it's going to have an effect in the future. So that's how my present, which is what we're talking about now, becomes my future. So what we're doing at this very, very moment in time is important you know, because it is, in some ways, going to become your future. Uh, and you can see there is a direct karmic link there with that because that, karma, you know, that act activity is action, of course, which is going to have an effect at some point. Because um, of this patterning of mind and body, well, those pattern also the ways that we see, touch, hear, uh, smell, and all the rest of it, and also the way that we contact other mental phenomena which are arising in our continuum. Um, that, of course, then is going to lead to contact because we are embodied. We have these senses six senses, very important here because the mental sense is a, is a sense which contacts mental objects. Um, we then contact things and out of that context, contact this is where we finished last night which was we have feeling arising, sensation arising. And that sensation really, and this covers virtually the whole of your experience is pleasant, unpleasant or neither. I'd like to know if you can think of anything outside of that range. I'd be really interested. <laughs> Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Both mental and physical. So there's six types of sensation that we experience. So when I'm sitting there doing my meditative practice, or you're sitting there doing your meditative practice, and you get an unpleasant thought, it's unpleasant. The contact immediately is unpleasant. I don't have any choice about it. It comes up as unpleasant. If I have a pain in my knee, unless I'm a masochist, it comes up as unpleasant. You know. um, then there are those nice thoughts that come up. You want to go with them. And those are pleasant thoughts. Now, as you can see, what this is doing is, in some sense, is setting up a pattern. Because from the mere sensation of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we are then going to have the mechanisms of reactivity towards them. Now, you see this in meditation. This is really the, probably the most basic and simple uh, Vipassana-type meditation you're ever likely to come across, which is observing sensation, what's going on. Because the desire when you have unpleasant sensation, I don't mean excruciating pain, but just unpleasant sensation in the body is to shift, isn't it? And you keep shifting. So the whole meditation is like this. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you are not actually physically doing it mentally, You're wanting to shift. If it is an unpleasant thought arising, what are you doing? You don't really want it, do you? I mean, that's one of the things which is actually can be quite difficult 
about the meditative experience is actually being with a lot of stuff that you're not used to being with that is arising here. You know, normally in everyday life, as I try to make apparent over the first couple of nights of these talks, we try to avoid. Um, we try to avoid at all costs actually having to deal with a lot of that material. We have wonderful distracting mechanisms to get us out of there, to get us out of those difficult situations. In meditative retreat situations, even just doing meditation at home, sometimes you're confronted with elements of your experience that you don't want to know about, that you want to run away from. So those are the two big poles of our experience, aren't they? Attraction and repulsion. There you go. Attraction and repulsion. That's really the push-pull mechanism of much of our lives. Um, if you think about it, and I tried to stress this one of the other nights, so I'm kind of touching on a lot of things we've covered already. What we're doing, of course, is simply reacting. We're not acting. Where is the action? Here. If I see something unpleasant or experience something unpleasant, and I immediately just move and try to get rid of it as quickly as possible, it's a reaction. If I see I know, that piece of material object in the window that I really want, and I'm desiring it, and the first, next thing I know is I'm purchasing it. That's simply reaction. It's not action. So, as I made very clear one of the other evenings, one of the things, for example, that's very difficult for us to do is to dwell with the uncomfortable, to be with the uncomfortable, to be with the unpleasant. And it's, for example, even that attraction to something, and I can't afford it, then becomes unpleasant. It becomes an unpleasant sensation. It becomes dukkha, in other words, when I can't get it. So those are the two strong poles of our... Um, experience. And then, of course, there is the neutral pole. Actually, it's the pole of indifference. We can divide our world up, as we do, very easily into that which we're attracted to and that which we are repulsed by. In fact, um, much of our life is defined, perhaps, I would suggest to you, and our sense of identities by knowing who we are by what we like and what we dislike. So we are actually just a bundle of what we like and what we dislike, and that was what we call or frame as our identity quite a considerable portion of the time. You know, I don't like this, therefore I am that type of person. I like this, therefore I'm that type of person. So we're forming an identity out of our likes and dislikes. Um, in fact, there was a great novel, I don't know if anybody's read it, by Robert Musso called The Man Without Qualities. Because he didn't particularly like anything or dislike anything. So he was considered to be quite nebulous and quite qualityless. Quite a frightening prospect. Because <laughs> you know where you are with somebody who's opinionated. <laughs> in other words, well formed in terms of temperament and opinions and you know, likes and dislikes and everything else. I think we're often quite wary, aren't we, of people who don't, in some senses, have strong opinions. Now, there is one name for this process um, here, and this is this next link, which arises immediately on contact with anything. So this is not, I might add, simply theory. This is what is actually going on. The moment I touch something, 
there is a feeling of or a sensation arising of pleasant or unpleasant or neither. Okay, so if I stick my hand on a hot plate, I don't say, hmm, is that pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? <laughs> what do I get? I get an immediate sensation, as I say, if I'm not a masochist, <laughs> of unpleasantness. Whereas if I perhaps put my hand into something nice and soft and silky, there is the immediate arising of pleasant sensation. So the one is immediately, of course, something to be avoided, and the other, I'm not recommending by any way people sticking their hands on hot plates, and the other, of course, is something to be prolonged. Now, actually, transposed into our ordinary lives, this means that, of course, the things that we find pleasant, we hold on to. The things that we find unpleasant, we run away from. And that is the mechanism. And this mechanism is actually called tanha in Pali, which means thirst. So there is a, a thirst to positively avoid all kinds of stuff in our lives. We really just do not want to know. In fact, Freud had something called the pleasure principle, um, which was actually mainly, mainly about the avoidance of pain. It wasn't about pleasure at all. And in a way, this comes, comes down on the, on the side of Tantra, which is actually craving or thirsting to avoid something. Then, of course, there's the recognizable one, which when you hear the word craving, you tend to think much more obviously of, is the craving to have all the nice things that you want, all those sensual delights uh, that you want. And these are the two immediate poles of our experience. However, nothing is simple in Buddhism <laughs> because craving itself gets divided into three forms. I told you, it's list fetishist. <laughs> so there's three forms of tantha which are generally listed. The first one I won't go into because we cover this quite a lot, which is called kamma tantha. Um, kamma is the same word that's used in the word kamma sutra. Um, which some of you might have heard of, which isn't about sexuality per, per se, it's about sensuality. It's about all forms of sensuality, including sexuality. And so, Kamatanha is all our sensory delights, all the things that we want and crave to have in terms of the sensory goodies of this world. And there are lots of them, isn't there? Yeah, there are lots of sensory goodies that we can indulge in. Then there is what I call bhavatanha. Um, bhavatanha is actually the desire to continue. And it's there in the, have you heard, right in embedded in ignorance as well, this desire to continue. Um, and this means to continue in whatever way possible. Now this might be from a fully-fledged idea of it's going to be me that's reborn, um, and experiences another lifetime, um, right down to the idea that you might want to continue yourself through your children or through your good works. Any way that we can think of to perpetuate ourselves. Now you can see this is the desire in some ways to make ourselves permanent. Now that doesn't have to be buying into the idea of I'm an immortal soul or anything of that form, which is going to go from life to life, or 
you know, in Christian terms, go to some kind of heavenly life or anything like that. It doesn't have to be of that form whatsoever. It means any way, even the subtlest way, that we try in some sense to continue ourselves. I mean, you still go around this country, even these days, and still find these libraries with little stones on which say Andrew Carnegie you know, actually endowed this library. What a way of perpetuating yourself. There's all these university chairs named after people who endowed them at some point. It's a very nice thing to do as well, but you know, it's a way of perpetuating yourselves. And so there's all kinds of ways we can perpetuate ourselves. For ordinary people, it's often the vicarious way that we live through children as well and perpetuate ourselves through our children and then our grandchildren and kind of continuing the lineage um, in some form or another. And what I say is this is you on a good day. This is when you really want to continue in some way. Um, you, you know, it might be the desire, for example, to continue the day. I'm having such a good day. Hopefully like you all had today. <laughs> but you just want it to continue. You just want it to go on. Um, and that's, that again, a desire to perpetuate oneself in some form or another. So it's, can you see what the characteristic of it is? It's clinging. It's holding on to it trying in some way to get something going or keep something in existence which is actually impermanent and always going to move and change and become evanescent in some form or another. Then, unfortunately, there's you on a bad day, which is vibhavatana, the desire not to be. And this means, I mean, quite seriously, this can mean the desire not to be at all which can psychologically lead to suicidal tendencies, a desire you know, to eradicate oneself almost completely, or completely, as it's perceived often by the attempted suicidal person. So that desire not to be is also then These two elements, again, for those who are a little bit more familiar with psychology, and particularly Freudian psychology, are very much like the elements that Freud talks about, the erotic drive, with, with karma and also with the desire to be and of course thanatos or the death drive in terms of the desire not to be and we all know that desire not to be at times when you've really got a bad case of the flu that's the desire not to be <laughs> you just don't want to engage with the world do you? you kind of crawl back into bed and put the covers over your head and everything else and it's kind of this withdrawal from the world completely now, interestingly, the way it's described in Buddhist terms is these are not mutually exclusive. Um, hopefully you can see, for example, and I'm going to give this example, that kamatanha, or the desire for sensual pleasures, which will include all the drinks and the drugs and everything else that we engage in, plus the sexuality and all these things, can be a way of seeking for oblivion as well. In other words, it's mixed up with the desire not to be in this life um, so they're not mutually exclusive they're, they, are, they are mixed in some ways in fact most of what we go through in a day is probably mixed up in this way you know, so it's what is actually happening again if we begin to get a key into it and start to examine it so this means for example it's really looking at a lot of our habitual tendencies you know, a lot of our addictions, and I don't mean this in necessarily in terms of the big addictions, but the addictions that we have, the ways that we try to get some kind of oblivion. You know, it can be sitting in front of a cinema screen endlessly, 
because it takes us out of ourselves. We are no longer present to a certain degree. It's a way of negating ourselves. So it's looking at all the mechanisms that we have for negating ourselves. So we have this trilogy, this trinity, I should say. We have this trinity of karma, bhava, and vibhava. Sensuality, the desire to be, and the desire not to be. And these are all elements of this craving that we have. And this craving, as I say, is an unquenchable thirst. And in that, really, one should hear why it is a problem from a Buddhist perspective. It's because it's unquenchable. We cannot, even if it's the thirst to avoid, we cannot avoid all the things that we don't want. In fact, I, again, often joke about this and say, have you noticed how life mostly gives you what you don't want? A lot of life is actually giving you what you don't want, um, but you have to deal with it. You have to somehow cope with it. Then there, of course, is that thirst for the, the goodies of this world, which is unquenchable. And I've touched on that quite a lot, so I'm not going to say too much more about that. But as you can see, it has no terminal point. If one is caught up on that train of desire, it has no terminal point. There is no end to it. So we're caught on a roller coaster if we're going down that route, where we end up just craving and craving and craving that is all. But to compound the problem, I'm sorry it's terribly negative news at the moment, <laughs> but to compound the problem um, is the next link that arises um, on dependence of craving, independence of craving, which is called, well it's usually translated as attachment. Not only do we crave, but once we've craved, we attach ourselves to that thing perhaps we have got through our craving um, and we hold on to it very very firmly and it actually has within the Pali term Upadana it has the idea of a closed hand closing around something and not letting it go at all Um, the actual word word in the original language means to fuel it means to fuel any material process so actually it's attachment which fuels craving. And it fuels greed, hatred, and delusion. It's like literally putting, and actually this is where it's derived from in the original language, it's derived from literally stoking up the fire. Because when you performed upadana, this is this Pali word or Sanskrit word, you were literally putting logs on the fire. You were keeping it stacked up. So attachment is stacking or stoking the fires keeping them going. So if you've got this fire, and the Buddha uses this metaphor of fire continuously, um, in one particular very famous sermon, he says, everything is burning. The whole world is burning. The whole world is consumed with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's a very, very strong metaphor, isn't it, that he's using. Um, but it's, again, it's to get us to see something, the way that we are literally burning up with these things. We are literally in a fever to go back to tanha, because that's another meaning of the word tanha, to be in a fever. Yeah. You know, burning up with desire, burning up with craving. Now the image of, um, of upadana or attachment 
uh, again, has some nice little stories and metaphors and images associated with it uh, about the nature of this entrapment. And the most common one that's used is um, the idea of what's called the monkey trap. Um, this is a way that they trap, trap monkeys. What they do is they bury a bowl, something like this, but with a neck on it as well, in the ground. And they put something in the bowl, such as some fruit, for example, that the monkey wants. And what the monkey does is it comes along and goes... And it can't pull its hand out. What has it got to do? What it's got to do is let go. But it doesn't. That's us. We're stuck in the monkey trap. <laughs> in other words, we're trapped by that which we're attached to. Yeah. You can think about it. When you think about all these possessions, an awful lot of them we don't like. We don't even want. We don't get rid of them. We hold on to them a lot of the time. And we get upset if somebody else takes them. <laughs> and yeah, I'm kind of painting a rather silly but slightly graphic image here. Of course, there's this being entrapped by our possessions, but we're entrapped by an awful lot more than just that. Another image is used, again, it's a, another form of monkey trap uh, that happens, is that they put tar on the floor. Have you ever heard this one? They put tar to trap a monkey? What the monkey does, the monkey comes bundling along, and it goes like this. It's got one paw stuck. So what does it do? It puts it in its foot and tries to pull the paw out. <laughs> so now it's got two paws stuck. So then it puts in its other paw and tries to pull out the other three. Eventually it gets four and eventually it gets its head stuck because it's trying to pull itself by its head and it's this one hell of a stuck monkey by this time. And all it had to do was, if it was in the forest, was hold on to something else and pull itself out. But it tries to pull itself out in a totally wrong way. Now the reason why this particular image is used in some senses is to make it clear what's going on in a lot of our ordinary life is that we're trying to extricate ourselves from dukkha by the wrong mechanisms. We are trying to pull ourselves out by our own force and the wrong you know, tactics and techniques to get out. And in fact, in this image, you know, pulling yourself out by the twig or the branch is to pull yourself out by the dharma. That's what you're pulling yourself. You're extricating yourself out by the dharma, holding on to something that's firm and something which is you know, holds true. Yeah. So this is the image that's used to indicate our degree of stuckness. And do you ever feel stuck? Yeah. Because that's often what's going on. That sense of entrapment that we often feel. And again, you can only examine this in terms of your own experience. But if you do feel that entrapment, that's often an indication of our attachment, of the feeling of being in that kind of sticky place. Um, that we have not letting go now this not letting go of course yeah, we've talked about it in terms of material possessions but actually it's letting go of an awful lot of psychological baggage that we have that we carry along with us that we take with us yeah, we take with us all, our, all of our resentments and jealousies and hatreds and dislikes and likes and things like this this is all the baggage that we carry along with us adds to that sense of entrapment adds to that feeling of I can't do anything else other than what I'm doing then out of that arises um, and let me try and paint a picture here actually to try and give you an idea what is now called becoming Bala again it's another, another 
form of power that arises here. And this is, if you imagine this whole, whole thing so far as a circle from ignorance, coming through all these conditions, eventually coming through contact and craving and ending up in attachment. Well, you can think of a kind of almost addictive circle here where we're being driven by a delusion that something is going to make us happy. And it doesn't have to be drink or drugs. It can be shopping, <laughs> for example, in our material world. Something like that. Something that's going to make us happy. So what do we do? We come through to the contact of seeing something, craving it, you know, being attached to the idea of having that thing. So what do we do? We manipulate everything, every possible means to find ourselves in the process of trying to get that thing. You know, of trying to attain whatever it is that you want. That will finally lead, of course, to what's known as birth, which actually is being in the situation, hopefully, of getting the thing that you want. But, and to try and, try and close the circle here, all good things come to an end. Because there's what's called um, old age and death. Now, old age and death here can obviously literally refer to the physical and death, but it refers actually to dissolution and disappearance. So any situation we create for ourselves you know, winds up being in, a, in, an, in a, a position where it starts to disintegrate and finally dissolve completely. So it, there is nothing permanent. So we're back on the treadmill of having to go through all of the other links again to get round to getting in the situation where we want what we, you know, you, where we get what we want. Now, because we're running out of time, and I want to leave some time for some questions here. That presents a picture of you every moment. <laughs> Frightening, isn't it? <laughs> you know, if that is a picture of us every moment, and only you can examine it, and, and actually part of a lot of the meditative training is actually getting to see if this is actually occurring. Now, you might think that's a terribly bad news story about what's occurring in the moment, but it's also showing us the possibility of breakout, <laughs> of actually being able to break out of this. And where the, most, the greatest possibility lies for us breaking out of this trapped, enclosed situation is between the arising of Vedana and craving. That's the position. So hence the real importance of observing sensations as they come up. Knowing what they are. Now think about this. When we have those very strong sensations, and I'm really only reiterating what I've said earlier on, but I just really want to emphasize this to you. When we have those very strong sensations of like and dislike, let's forget about the neutrality for a minute talk about that because we're going to do that as a category tomorrow in some sense, the neutral but these very strong sensations, what are we doing? Well, the moment we get the sensation of dislike, unpleasant I'm trying to avoid so I move, I shift do whatever I have to do if it's somebody I see along the road, the immediate sensation of that face on the other side of the road unpleasant, cross the road <laughs> now it sounds jokey but that's what, what we do, we avoid people way. You know, the person who's pleasant, that pleasant visage that's coming along the road, I gravitate towards them. 
that material thing, that pleasant sensation that I want, and I want to keep repeating it. I keep doing it again and again and again. I keep repeating it. Um, actually, from the Buddha's perspective, we're actually all compulsive neurotics. <laughs> we keep doing the same thing again and again and again, despite the fact often it ends up in pain. So we're doing the avoidance trick again and again and again, and we're doing the you know, being drawn to something again and again and again. And therefore, if that is the case, what happens? Well, we get caught up in this reactive pattern. Hence the circularity of it. Hence the reason why it's sangsara, going around in circles. So, the place to actually start to unravel is in experiencing the sensation of doing something about the craving. Seat and start running towards whatever you desire <laughs> or running away from whatever you don't like, then it's a controlled experiment that you can actually be with things which you desire very, very strongly and do what? Watch their arising and passing away. Desires actually have a very limited time span. If you sit with a desire, I don't know if you've ever done this. Most of us don't, actually, because when we have a desire, we go out and immediately satiate it. <laughs> so it's not the sort of, I don't sort of go, mm, desire. <laughs> Find myself eating the chocolate, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> but if you do get that strong craving for something, sit it's like you would do in meditation. And what, what happens? It will peak and then it will fall away. Now, it might come back again, but it might come back in a less strong form. It might come back stronger. We don't know. But what you're watching actually is the arising of it and the passing away of it. Now, that's not something we don't normally even give it a chance to do, is watch it arising and passing away. We're not giving that tender, you know, giving that moment's ability to do what it does, and arise and pass away. Or even in the, you know, say, a block of arisings and passings away of certain desires, to see the different intensities of them that are there. And also, I could do this just as well for the avoidance as well, but it's obviously easier in some ways to talk about it in terms of one's cravings. Yeah. Craving and desire, two words are interchangeable. So we're watching that mechanism, watching it do what it does. Arise and pass away, arise and pass away. And if we do that, then we start to break the chain of, you know, of compulsion. Yeah. That is what we're doing, breaking the chain of compulsion. Because otherwise, we are caught on this circularity, in this circularity, in this mechanism, almost like a treadmill just keep running around and traveling. Um, and much of life can have that feeling to it. Particularly when you're under those strong compulsive desires that you have. So hopefully the news is getting better because it's starting to tell you what you can actually now start to do about things. You know, to watch them rather than immediately react to them. Now, sometimes, and I'll put this in this really basic form, sometimes you will succeed and sometimes you will fail. And there's not really a problem with that. You know, it's like meditation. Sometimes you will succeed in maintaining focus 
or developing the meta, and as in this case, and other times you'll fail abysmally. So what? It really, really doesn't matter because every next moment is a new opportunity. Every next moment is a new opportunity. Now, in terms of rebirth, and this is the final thing I want to say because, again, we're running out of time. The final thing I want to say is when we live in some senses an unexamined, non-meditative life, and I mean meditation in its broadest possible sense, mindfulness, actually, perhaps I should say better, when we live mindfulness in its broadest possible sense, it means we're examining all the dimensions of our life as we're moving through it, not just sitting on cushions. We're actually examining it as we're going through it with this kind of frame of reference. And it is only a frame of reference. It's not a fait accompli. It's there as a frame of reference to help you investigate your experience. Because ultimately, it's your experience that counts. Nothing I say, nothing any teacher who sits in this position says, really is surmounts your experience. It's important that you do the work. This is, this is not, you know, I now subscribe to dependent origination. <laughs> I've signed up to it. <laughs> I'm now a believer. <laughs> There's no point in that. That's not what it's about. It's a tool for investigation. That's all. For helping you to investigate your experience. Um, it sounds complex. It isn't. It gets more complex. <laughs> but this is the most basic framework for helping us to do this. Um, and in terms of the rebirth, you know, you've heard Buddhism is full of talk about rebirth. You know, well, let's at the moment let's drop out the two ends of our lives. You know, possibilities of past lives and future lives. You've got past lives and future lives in this life. You know, every moment, you know, you're being reborn. So much so that sometimes you can look back, can't you? And possibly we've all done this at some point and said, "I was a very different me then." I was a very different person than the way I am now. It doesn't mean, of course, that you are a completely different person. What it means is that there is a kind of continuum... terminal point to it and it doesn't put a beginning point to it in terms of sangsara. As long as there is something that can continue to be reborn then it will be. Now in terms of our own life this is very important because it means actually that given that mechanism that I've just spoken about every moment becomes an opportunity. Every moment becomes an opportunity for doing something different. Now, in Tibetan Buddhism, some of you might have come across a book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, because it was very popular at one stage, Sogyal Rinpoche's book. But there's an idea within that kind of tradition that he comes from, which is called the idea of bardo. The idea of bardo. Bardo is a Tibetan word. It's a translation from a Sanskrit term. But it means in between. And in the traditional context, it means the moment, it means the period in between death and rebirth. But it also means psychologically any moment between the death of this moment and rebirth of the next moment. And that, even in its traditional form of between being between death and rebirth, is considered to be a period of opportunity. 
you can do something if you recognize the right signs. Now, in the traditional conception of this kind of Bardo state, there's kind of what's called wrathful and peaceful deities. Now, and everybody gravitates towards the peaceful. Wrong move. <laughs> you gravitate towards the wrathful. You know, um, however, in other words, I think you know, transposing this perhaps into our modern idiom, it's actually, it's not going towards the comfort. It's going towards the difficulty. That becomes the moment of opportunity. That becomes the moment when you could attain some clarity, some form of wakefulness. I won't say awakening, but some form of wakefulness. And so, and this is really I personally find very exciting, very dynamic, is that it's there every moment. Every moment is an opportunity. Why do we want to suddenly kind of nullify whole areas of our life? If that is the case, that every moment I have this opportunity to wake up. So therefore, why do I do certain anaesthetizing things in my life and wish to anaesthetize myself? myself comatose in some way. And that will become the topic of tomorrow night. <laughs> okay, so this question. I didn't cover it in quite as much detail as I wanted to, but uh, probably sufficient enough for yourselves. Um, but so it's open to questions and comments and Yeah, I think, the, I think the difficulty of it is only a perceived difficulty. It's, again, it's a kind of mental hindrance that we put up. Yes, in a way, I would admit, but I put difficulty in scare quotes. You know, it's like a lot of this. It's like meditation. It seems like an uphill struggle in the initial stages. The more and more you do of it, I wouldn't say easier it becomes, but it certainly becomes easier to a degree as you do it bringing awareness and bringing mindfulness into just ordinary aspects of daily life can initially seem quite problematic. If you do it in the form of training, then it becomes easier. So it's, it's not kind of expecting it all at once. It's knowing that there are degrees. You know, so you know, in, in this path, what we're doing is opening up a field of awareness. We start off quite small within our own capacity. If you are interested in doing this, guess most people are because they're here. So you start off by you know, looking and becoming aware in a smaller field and then you become kind of I don't know, happier in that field. A little bit more comfortable. And then you can widen it out and then widen it out and widen it out. And as you go through life it becomes that widening process. And so even within the narrow range every moment becomes an opportunity for something. Something different. Now, it becomes an opportunity particularly, I think, to either reinforce our habit patterns 
or to a degree challenge them. And that's really what I'm trying to get at, particularly in relationship to what I was talking about tonight. We can either fall back into those, and I talked about this very strongly a couple of nights ago, we can fall very strongly back into those comfort zones of habit patterns, or on occasions we might want to challenge them. We might want to challenge their kind of restricted nature. It's collapsing into the familiar, isn't it? And, 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 and that's, that's going to happen. I mean, let's face it, it's going to happen for all of us for a considerable period of time. Because by its very nature, the familiar is what we always run back to, even if it is unpleasant. Um, and we tend to do that be- simply because of its familiar- familiarity. This is why, for example, you know, I think that many people stay, both men and women, particularly women, stay in abusive relationships. Not because they don't want to get out, but because it's familiar. It's what they know. It's what we know. You see, at the moment, breaking a habit pattern is to move out into an unknown territory. And that, initially, can either, we can again, it's like all these things that can have two tones to it. It can either be scary, or it can be liberating. Um, in our kind of trepidatiousness about the dropping of the familiar, of course it becomes scary. But I think, you know, given the structures of the path that supports this kind of movement, you have a lot of support behind it. And it's really, that's kind of going to be the topic of the next couple of nights that I want to talk about, is what supports us in moving in that way. In other words, what gives us sustenance what gives us that um, feeling of something to rely on, even when I step out into the scary zone. Because that's really important. If we don't have that, I think we are always likely to keep falling back into the familiar. So again, it's kind of a response to your question rather than an answer to it. Yes, there is. There, I mean, in general, suicide is frowned on um, within Buddhist works. I mean, there is some stuff in what's called the Vinaya, which is the material which deals with um, the Buddhist monastic discipline and that. And there are quite a number. There are quite a lot of stories. There's a number of stories about monks who wish to take their own life. And in one case, um, the Buddha is saying that the person who's got a terminal illness is basically a case of self-euthanasia. He's got a terminal illness, illness, this particular monk. And he says, I'm going to to take the blade to myself. And some of the Buddha's close disciples try to dissuade him from taking his own life. Um, But um, they can't persuade him. He still sees it. And then they go back and report to the Buddha what they've done. 
and the Buddha says this man cannot be condemned because he's not doing it for the thought of a better new life or for anything else only to relieve his suffering at that immediate time that's all so he doesn't actually condemn him in other instances where for example particularly in Buddhism you have to think about this in traditional terms of Buddhism the idea of perhaps you know, committing suicide in a traditional Buddhist culture is sometimes with the desire to get a better new life and the Buddha says that is misguided because you're just perpetuating suffering that is all whatever suffering you've got now in this traditional view in some senses is carried over so better to deal with it now than carry it over I think he's, he's very much you know, in terms of um, terminal illnesses I think he's very much more on the well if it's not for a desire for a better new life very much on the um, elimination of needless suffering but there's not that many instances where he mentions it. Yeah. yeah. It's a continuing debate. It's a continuing debate within Buddhist cultures as well. The idea of euthanasia. I mean, there's a very famous case, of course. Some of you might remember it, certainly seen photographs of it, was with a Buddhist monk in the Vietnam War who sat down, poured petrol over himself and set fire to himself as a protest about it. Now, that is suicide by any other name, but it was done in the sense of a greater good. In other words, to, to alert um, the world to what was going on in Vietnam at that particular time and as a protest against the government at that particular time. You know, so it's not clear-cut. I mean, none of these issues are clear-cut. Uh, even in Buddhist cultures, what I call issues about death and dying, uh, there are not clear issues about them. The reason why, let me just say this since you raised this as a question, the reason why in general suicide is frowned upon is because of the prohibition against taking life. Any life, even your own. That is it. I mean, it's the whole, it's the whole thing that's within Buddhism which is called Ahimsa, which is the whole doctrine of nonviolence within it. You know, violence against oneself and violence against others. But there does seem to be a few cases where there's kind of mitigation from what the Buddha said. But if you're interested in those issues, um, you know, if you want to leave me a note on the board, I can give you some references where you can look them up if you're interested. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.